Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Welcome back to My 70s TV Childhood, the podcast where we celebrate growing up as a child in 1970s Britain and the central role that watching television had in our and our families' lives back then. A special welcome to you if you're joining us for the first time, and welcome back if you're one of our many regular listeners. As always, thanks to all of you who've been in touch recently, either by leaving comments on our social media or by emailing me directly. Yet again, I've had a bulging digital postbag, and I wanted to share a few of the messages I've had following our episode on summer holidays and Robinson Crusoe. Thanks to Gordon on Twitter, or X as we apparently must now call it, for whom the episode brought back memories of playing out Desert Island adventures after the show, and of visiting Lower Largo in Scotland, which was the home of Alexander Selkirk, the man whose real-life Desert Island shipwreck inspired the story of Robinson Crusoe. Thanks also to Paul on X, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get used to that, who made a point that he didn't follow the serials on school holiday TV, oh no, as he was afraid of missing an episode when he was out doing things with his friends and family. Very sensible, Paul. And on a similar theme, Amanda on Facebook let me know that she never saw the endings of any of the serials like Robinson Crusoe and The Flashing Blade, as school holidays in Scotland were three weeks ahead of the rest of the UK. Oh, Amanda, I feel your pain. It was the same in the Northwest where I was went to school, because we always seemed to be a week or two out of sync with them as well, and I don't think I ever saw the final episode of The Flashing Blade. I've also been impressed by how many of you have been in touch to say you've re-watched Robinson Crusoe in recent years and still enjoyed it. I think the DVD might be on my Christmas list this year. Thanks for all of the other messages. I would just like to mention Nick, a regular correspondent, who let me know that his brother-in-law has been in hospital recovering from a serious operation and has been listening to the podcast in his hospital bed. So to Nick's brother-in-law, I hope you get well soon. And finally, we've had lots of suggestions of subjects for future episodes, which I'm going to be reviewing and feeding into our production schedule for the next few months. Remember, if you do want to get in touch, we're really great to hear from you. And you can find us on most social media, or you can simply email me, Oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. Oh, and I almost forgot to mention, next week, on the 22nd of August, something very special is going to be happening. As most of you know, a new episode of our podcast drops onto your platform once every two weeks. But for some of you, that doesn't seem to be enough. What a knowledgeable and discerning audience you are. Following your request for more, we've listened. And on the 22nd of August, we should be launching Wait for it. The My 70s TV Childhood Quiz. So, what's that all about, I hear you ask? We'll have four rounds of questions every fortnight to challenge your brain cells. It's just for fun. Why not get together with some friends over a few panda pops, or with your brother or sister who you used to argue with about whether Blue Peter or Magpie was best, and take on the challenge of the My 70s TV Childhood Quiz. There will also be an opportunity for you to pitch your wits against other listeners. Get your thinking caps on, try not to cheat by Googling when you're listening, and join us on 22nd of August. Unless you're catching up on back episodes when you can dive straight into the quiz itself. I'm really looking forward to that, 
So I hope you'll join us to test your knowledge. So on to this week's reminiscences, and about time I hear some of you say. Well, I've recently been reminded of British society and its obsession with class, as the latest Downton Abbey movie, Downton, A New Era, is now available for me to watch on demand from my satellite TV provider. Now, Downton Abbey was a hugely popular TV show, and I have to confess that it made for perfect Sunday night TV, as it washed over you with beautiful actors, lovely scenery, and largely forgettable storylines. It felt warm and fuzzy to watch, and over a few years, it ran its course before inspiring two film versions, and that's just to date, which seems to me at least one too many, but there we are. And don't you think that Downton, A New Era, sounds a bit like the title of a Star Trek or a Star Wars movie? Anyway, in spite of our modern post-industrial society, we still seem to love watching the toffs lording it over us. And I don't think that's anything new. Before the Second World War, the UK was a pretty conformist society, with reasonably clear demarcation between those who held power and influence in society and those who didn't. And you can see it in lots of pre-war literature and films. But after the tumultuous impacts of the war, our society suffered a shockwave, and the former restrictions and conventions of class and social mobility began to change and relax, and more opportunities opened up for equality and social and economic progression. There wasn't a dramatic revolution, but slowly the historic boundaries in our society began to become less rigid. And some of this came out in the expression of youth through rock and roll. Teddy boys rioting at performances of the film Rock Around the Clock featuring Bill Haley and his Comet. And then ultimately in the swinging 60s and the emergence of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and others. Women became more active in the workplace and social and economic mobility increased. But we were still, for some reason, obsessed by class. You've probably seen or heard the famous That Was The Week That Was sketch about class from the 1960s. I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. (laughs) I am middle class. (laughs) I know my place. (laughs) I look up to them both. But I don't look up to him. As much as I look up to him. Because <laughs> he has got innate breeding. I have got innate breeding, but I have not got any money. <laughs> so sometimes I look up to him. I still look up to him. Because although I have money, I am vulgar. <laughs> but I'm not as vulgar as him. So I still look down on him. I know my place. <laughs> These attitudes continued into the 1970s, and whilst the reality was that our country was slowly becoming more egalitarian and less divided by social standing, there was still enormous deference in the way that we viewed others and the way we behaved. And I think this was also true in our viewing habits, where we liked nothing better to have our views of society confirmed. And one show in particular, which was hugely popular, played on our nostalgia for those times when, well, I suppose we all knew our place. Thank you. 
Upstairs Downstairs first hit our TV screens in 1971, and it followed the lives of the Bellamy family, who lived upstairs in a large London townhouse at 165 Eaton Place, and their servants, who were the downstairs part of the title. Quite a simple premise, really, but one which set a perfect stage for melodramas of all kinds, played out against the great events of the early 20th century. I don't remember it from the beginning, but do remember it from about halfway through. Originally, it was screened on a Sunday evening, so, if I was lucky, I might get up to stay and watch it, especially if there wasn't any school the next day. My appreciation of the show was also helped by the fact that it was subsequently repeated on Sunday afternoons from, I guess, about 1977, so I was able to catch up on all the bits I hadn't seen first time round. Remember, as I'm sure most of you do, unless a programme was repeated, you never got the chance to see it again in these pre-video and streaming days. It was also re-shown in its entirety on Channel 4 in the mid-80s, and I managed to see quite a few episodes again then. It left quite an impression on me for a couple of reasons. I think that the ensemble cast was really strong and worked well together, with some really memorable characters played by very talented actors, more of which later and also because each episode was played out against the backdrop of significant events from the sinking of the Titanic, through the First World War, the General Strike, through to the stock market crash of 1929. So it all seemed very engaging and realistic and exciting. The idea from the show came from two actresses, Jean Marsh, who went on to play Rose in the series, and Eileen Atkins, later Dame Eileen Atkins, who devised a format for a comedy series provisionally titled Behind the Green Bay's Door, which featured two housemaids working in a large country house in the early 20th century and the family that they served. They took the idea to a production company, Segita Productions, and teamed up with John Hawksworth and John Whitney. As part of this collaboration, the show developed into a drama rather than a comedy, and the setting moved to a London townhouse rather than a country estate, and, After being rejected by Granada TV, the show was commissioned by London Weekend Television. A side note for listeners who may not be aware or don't remember. London had two ITV TV franchises, with Thames Television during the week and London Weekend Television running from tea time on Friday to Sunday night. Why? I've absolutely no idea, but that's the way it was. So the show was commissioned and the first series was shot in 1970 but it didn't actually get onto the screen until almost a year later. Apparently, the commercial teams at LWT and ITV nationally didn't think a series about a group of servants and their masters would be attractive to an early 70s audience, who were thinking all too, far too old-fashioned and, well, square men. How wrong they were. Eventually, the show was given a slot at 10.15 on a Sunday evening, traditionally a graveyard slot with small audiences, but after a slow start, the show picked up viewers and the word-of-mouth promotion turned it into a hit, so much so that the schedulers brought it forward from its later time into a more primetime slot earlier in the evening, which is where I first remember seeing the show. Contrary to the views of the suits, probably safari suits in the commercial team at ITV, Viewers couldn't get enough of seeing the show about servants and their masters, and the programme was to go on for five series, with 68 episodes covering the period from 1903 to 1930. Going back to the Downton phenomenon, it's clear that the British love these traditional types of stories, 
and the dynamics between those above and below stairs. So what was it about the show which proved so compelling? As I mentioned earlier, the casting was inspired. Can you remember who the main characters were? Let's start upstairs, as it were, where we have the Bellamy family. The matriarch of the family was Lady Marjorie, played by Rachel Gurney, who was a duke's daughter and who had all the breeding and, I seem to remember, the money. Her husband was Richard Bellamy, played by David Langton, son of a Norfolk parson and a Conservative MP to boot. The couple had two children, James, unforgettably played by the very smooth and suave Simon Williams, and Elizabeth, played by Nicola Padgett. Apparently, Lady Marjorie was due to have been played by Honor Blackman, which would have made her a very different character to Gurney's version, but, like so many castings, the producers didn't manage to make it happen. Over the years, the family dynamics changed and members of the family moved in and out. Lady Marjorie ran the household and the family like the aristocrat she was, and she also indulged in rather bohemian behaviour, like, I seem to remember, posing for a notorious artist and then having an affair with one of her son's friends. Oh, these aristocrats whereas her husband Richard was always rather dull and dedicated his work in the city in the House of Commons. Of the children, James was, as well as being a bit of a smoothie, what might have been described as a cad and a bounder as well. I always thought that Simon Williams must have had a whale of a time in the part, as he took up with unsuitable women, made Sarah the housemaid pregnant, and got up to all kinds of shady business dealings. His sister Elizabeth was a bit unfortunate to say the least. She enjoyed a romance of sorts with a German aristocrat, seemingly unaware that he was both gay and a spy who was using her in an attempt to steal British naval secrets from her father, who by this time was a minister in the war department. After the Baron was caught in a compromising position with one of the footmen, Elizabeth then married a poet, Lawrence Kerbridge, played by Ian Ogilvy, before he'd stepped into Roger Moore's shoes as the saint. This didn't go so well either, as he was a bad lot too. Poor Elizabeth, she wasn't so lucky with men. And when she departed to America in 1910, you couldn't really blame her. So lots going on in the first and second series. I'm not sure what happened at that point. But after Elizabeth went to America, she was never seen again. Perhaps contract negotiations for series three were a bit tricky. This was underlined by Lady Marjorie's, with hindsight, unwise decision to go and see her daughter in America sailing on the new flagship of the White Star Line. Yes, you guessed it. Yet another fictional character perishes on the Titanic. Which is about the time I first remember seeing the show. Alongside Lady Marjorie, her brother Hugo and sister-in-law perished as well, which allowed the producers to bring in their stepdaughter, Georgina Worsley, to Eaton Place and set Leslie Ann down on the road to stardom as the lead female character upstairs in the last three series of the show. Hang on, didn't that Titanic thing happen in Downton Abbey as well? Hmm, this is starting to feel a bit suspicious. And that's even before we've taken a look below stairs, where most of my favourite characters were. The servants were led by the stern and rigid Mr Hudson, the butler, played by Gordon Jackson. Originally, the producers had wanted George Cole to play the part, and to be honest, I'm very pleased that he didn't get it. The thought of Arthur Daly as Mr Hudson doesn't bear thinking about. At this point, Gordon Jackson was relatively well known as a TV and film actor, with a string of notable credits, 
including one of my favourites, as the hapless MacDonald in The Great Escape, who falls for the Gestapo man's trick of wishing him very good luck in English, to which he says, well, thank you very much, as he would. But it was upstairs-downstairs which made him into a real star, and led him getting the role of George Cowley in The Professionals, as we've mentioned in other episodes. Alongside Mr Hudson was the redoubtable Mrs Bridges, the cook, played by Angela Badley, who ruled the kitchen with a rod of iron, constantly berating the poor kitchen staff, most often Ruby, the scullery maid, who is always on the receiving end of Mrs Bridges' sharp tongue. Jean Marsh, the co-creator of the show, played Rose, originally a housemaid. Or actually, I think she was the parlour maid. I'm sure that's a very important difference. Who rose to be a lady's maid. Eileen Atkins was also supposed to have starred in the first series as a housemaid alongside Jean Marsh, but she was playing Queen Victoria in the West End, so was unavailable. Other notable faces downstairs included Thomas and Sarah, played by John Alderton and Pauline Collins. Alderton was already well known to TV audiences from his starring role in the sitcom Please Sir, which we've mentioned a few times in past episodes. But this was a breakthrough role for Collins, and the on-screen chemistry between the two characters as they embarked on a romance and then marriage was a popular feature of the first two series. Not a surprise, really, given they were a married couple in real life. They also ended up with their own spin-off show, Thomas and Sarah, which ran for 13 episodes in 1979 after Upstairs Downstairs had ended its run. It occupied the same Sunday night slot and got huge audiences and critical acclaim. A second series was being produced when the ITV network was closed down by strike action for 11 weeks between August and October 1979. And after filming four episodes, the show was cancelled, largely because the two stars had plenty of other options. All the episodes were wiped, so we'll never ever know what happened to the pair. It seems remarkable to look back on that strike. As we've often said on this podcast, there were only three channels in the 1970s, and to lose one of them for so long left an empty void, especially for fans of soaps like Crossroads and Coronation Street. I remember the excitement amongst me and my friends when ITV finally returned, and they had a little jingle to go with it. Do you remember that? I think in some ways we were easily pleased back then, especially as children. So, back to Upstairs Downstairs. How does it stack up when you compare it to its spiritual descendant, Downton Abbey? I haven't seen it since the Channel 4 reruns of the 1980s, so, as usual, I'm going to have to base some of this on memory. But, in a completely arbitrary and subjective way, I'm going to put Downton Abbey and Upstairs Downstairs in the ring and see how they manage head-to-head. Yes, it's the battle of the butlers, the clash of the cooks, the tussle of the toffs, to see who is the greatest. It's Downton versus Upstairs Downstairs, and it's live here on My 70s TV Childhood. T 
you know, I think I need to watch less football on Sky Sports as I'm getting a bit carried away with this. So let's have a look. Let's start with the budget. There's really no contest. Upstairs, downstairs initially had a budget of about 20 quid, I think, whereas nothing in Downton gets shot without tens of thousands of pounds being spent. On to locations. The beautiful High Clear House is Downton Abbey in the show, and you can't really argue that it's quite a place. In Upstairs, Downstairs, most of the scenes were shot in the studio, requiring the viewer to suspend their disbelief and really picture themselves with a cast in Eaton Place. And do you know what? I never had any problem with that as a child. I suppose it all goes alongside the budget restrictions, so I think that probably evens things out. No budget means very few outside locations. Bit of a draw there, I think. Now let's move on to more serious subjects. Quality of the storylines. I've already mentioned that Downton appeared to have nicked upstairs downstairs Titanic storyline, but what about other themes? Those upstairs having inappropriate relationships with servants? Tick. Those relationships leading to pregnancies and servants being sent away in disgrace? Another tick. First World War causing huge upheaval and having profound effects on masters and servants? Tick again. The children of the family having lots of bad luck in their love lives? Tick. Well, I suppose not Lady... Which one was it? Um, Sybil, was it? Was it? Yes, Sybil in Downton, who married the chauffeur, seemed to be very happy, but then tragically died in childbirth. Oh dear. There was plenty of that in Upstairs Downstairs too. Lord Bellamy lost his wife on the Titanic, which must have had a heck of a number of people on board given the number who've perished across TV and film dramas. Then we've already touched on Elizabeth's bad luck with men. And her brother James didn't do much better either. Back to the comparison. I should have mentioned that in both shows, the impact of the war on those involved was considerable. Both households lost members. And what we now recognise as post-traumatic stress disorder was evident in those both upstairs and downstairs. I think the most powerful storyline was the one concerning James Bellamy in Upstairs Downstairs, who returned from war a broken man. As a reaction to that, he lived life to excess and became even more of a cad than he was before. However, Simon Williams played the part so well that you did feel some sympathy for him as a human being. Ultimately, having persuaded his family, friends and some of the servants, including Rose, to invest in the stock market during the 1920s, he and those he persuaded to invest lost everything in the crash of 1929. And James, humiliated and disgraced, went off to a seaside hotel and shot himself, which I remember sent real shockwaves across the country. We should compare the quality of the acting. I think that's a close call. In Downton, Maggie Smith plays, well, Maggie Smith brilliantly. Hugh Bodderville takes a good part. And some of the baddies are played quite brilliantly. I'm particularly thinking of Siobhan Finneran as Scheming Ladies Made Miss O'Brien and Robert James Collier as Thomas the Footman, later Underbutler. I think he eventually became a butler as well. And everybody looks really nice as well. But compare that to Gordon Jackson, Angela Badley, Pauline Collins and John Alderson, each of them brilliant in their own way. I think I'd give that one to the 1970s show. And what about the individual comparisons in part? It's a close call in the Battle of the Butlers, with stiffly loyal Mr Carson up against the strictly conventional Mr Hudson. Both ruled with a rod of iron and commanded respect from the servants, but both had their soft, human sides too. On balance, I'm going to give it to Hudson. He was there first, 
and Carson is in some ways his natural successor. And in The Clash of the Cooks, I always loved Mrs Bridges, especially the way she dealt with the staff with a sharp tongue, whilst underneath looking after them like her own children. I do like Mrs Patmore in Downton, but again, I see her part as being built on the foundations of Mrs Bridges' work. So it's the older show on top again for me. And what about spin-offs? I've already mentioned Thomas and Sarah, and, as many of you know, there was supposed to be a new drama featuring Mr Hudson and Mrs Bridges, who got married at the end of the show. It turned out that Mr Hudson had wanted to marry her for years, but, as she was Mrs Bridges, he hadn't dared to inquire. Fortunately for all involved, she had taken the title Mrs in an attempt to become cook, as it sounded more respectable, and had never actually been married. And they ended upstairs-downstairs by announcing that they were going to set up a hotel in York. And the scene was set for the sequel. But unfortunately, Angela Badley died quite suddenly just before the shooting was about to begin. And Hudson's Hotel, as the show was to be called, never happened. The BBC did attempt a revival of Upstairs-Downstairs a few years ago. And whilst there was nothing particularly wrong with it, it didn't bear much comparison other than the name and the fact that Jean Marsh reprised the role of Rose once more. I'm not really sure what the point of it was. I could also mention the Jimmy Perry and David Croft allegedly comic spoof of Upstairs Downstairs, You Rang Malud, from the early 90s, but I think it's probably best for all concerned if I don't dwell on that. Downton Abbey has already had two spin-off films, which, you know, as I said earlier, I think is one too many at least, and it wouldn't surprise me to see more in the future. What might they be? How about Downton, The Churchill Years? Downton Abbey Road, The Origins of the Beatles. Or how about Downton Abbey in Space? It's got a certain ring to it, hasn't it? But for me, I see Downton Abbey as the ultimate sequel to Upstairs Downstairs. And for that reason alone, I award victory to the show. I'm sure it's what Eileen Atkins and Jean Marsh would have done with a huge budget. So that in itself is a huge compliment to the earlier programme. Audiences were used to seeing this portrayal of the family in the big house and the lives of those who serve them, and we loved it in both incarnations. While it's not a perfect society by any means, we are no longer as obsessed by class divides in Britain as we used to be, but we still love to see it portrayed on screen, and I don't see that changing any time soon. Do you remember Upstairs Downstairs? Am I being a bit harsh on Downton Abbey? Or perhaps you'd like to share your memories of growing up as a child in the 1970s and the TV that you enjoyed. If so, you can leave a comment on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com Find us on your favourite social media by searching for us or you can just email me oliver at my70stvchildhood.com Well, I hope you've enjoyed listening. And don't forget to join us next week for our all-new quiz. I'm really looking forward to that. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And, most importantly, join us again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood.